Father, thank you so much for this class. Uh, Thank you for the book of Numbers. Thank you that it is full of all sorts of lessons about you and even hard lessons like, uh, like your vengeance are ones that we need to hear. And I pray, Father, that you would bless us today as we continue to study in this book of the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we started the book, the Numbers 31, and we actually went through a kind of a, a pretty detailed uh, understanding of what God's vengeance is. And so I'm just going to summarize it by saying any vengeance that we see in the, in the you know, if, if this is the final judgment, any, any places along the way where God says to inflict vengeance, it is a foreshadow of that final judgment. So that's, that's what's happening. It's like the final judgment is being brought into it. And the fact that, that only God has a perfect knowledge of the situation, only God has a perfect understanding of justice, and so only God has the, the, the right to actually bring about the final judgment. So, most of the time, we live in the period where God is offering mercy to people. Um, even in the Old Testament, he's doing that repeatedly. But there are some big times, like, like the flood, right? Like uh, Joshua coming into the promised land, um, and this is another one here on the Midianites, so um, where we begin to see that. So I won't go into too many more details on that. Let's, let's go into uh, Numbers 31, beginning in verse 4. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. Um, and I'll start out reading, and then I'll give some other people a chance to read. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So they were provided out of the thousands of Israel. A thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. So what... What can you see, so we're, we're saying that this command to uh, take out the Midianites is actually a, a picture of the final judgment. So there are lessons that we can learn about the final judgment from this particular uh, passage. So what can you learn? about God's judgment from this, these verses. Draw some parallels here. Uh, let's see, I'll pick up, let's pick on John. Give me, you get the first lesson, John. <laughs> now, let me ask you this, John. How many men could they have drawn from to fight this battle? They could have drawn all of them. Right, so there's had a census that told them how many there were. There's six hundred thousand people. So we could say that each tribe contributed a equal amount, you might say. Every tribe 
participates, and it's it's equal, right? It's a it's like a uh, it's not like there's a certain portion. Like this tribe is the battle people, and the rest of them just do nothing. Every tribe has to give a certain amount, right? So that's what does that maybe tell you about the final judgment? Do you think the church participates in the final judgment? We do. It's the, it's the prayers of the saints, number one, which God answers in the final judgment, but there's a sense where we are somehow uh, participating in the final judgment, which is hard to imagine. Uh, even if you can't imagine actually slain, you know, like the soldiers, um, what would it require of these tribes to to participate in the judgment? Like, what what is it? That's a hard question to ask. I'll just say it. It requires that the people agree with the judgment, right? If somebody else's if somebody else's uh, say in our justice system. Uh, they make a ruling, this happens all the time, and the people don't like the, the ruling, they don't like the execution, what do they do? They protest, right? I'm, we're opposed to that. We would never do that. God is wrong in that. And so when God says that you must participate in this act of vengeance, you must be in agreement with God's judgment to do it. Isn't that true? Do we agree that God is just in the final judgment? Are we, do we applaud him, or do we say, oh, man, that's a harsh God? Think about the way we treat the Bible, especially unbelievers today. Oh, it's shameful that God would ever judge anyone. Well, according to this, as Christians, we should be, in, we should be approving of what God says. Now, it's different than personal revenge. We talked about this last time. It's not ours to just have personal vengeance, but here... God's people, all of them, every tribe, are to participate in this. Um, also, the small number. Why, why a small number? Why just a thousand? Why not, why not uh, oh, 6,000 from each? Or set, you know, that would get us close to you know, this amount up here. Why not that much? Why only just a small amount? Well, that's, that's the Gideon. next point. That Gideon, right? So in the final judgment, who is the one that wins the battle? It's the Lord. It's not our victory. It's not because we're stronger than our enemies. God is the one fighting the battle. And so the fact that it's small helps us understand that it is God's power that, that brings it about. Okay? What else do you see? Who else goes along? The priest goes along. Now, how, how would that point us to the, who's leading the army in the final judgment? Jesus is, the priest, right? And Jesus is able to do it because he's, all the people in his army also deserve to be judged, right? But he is, he's paid the penalty for them. And so Jesus, as the priest, has purchased us for himself so when we take part in this war, it's not because we're better than anyone else. It's because Christ is our priest. Uh, what other vessels of the sanctuary 
what do we see there? The trumpets, right? Is there trumpets that announce the final judgment? Yep. Uh, it, it seems to be that there is uh, the ark and its contents, right? The vessels of the sanctuary would have been at least the ark. Uh, and that would be like the presence of God is with them as well. God's presence is going uh, with them. <clears throat> this is what we think about when we say a holy war. Now, throughout history, there are many times that people want to say this is a holy war when they don't necessarily have a commandment of God to do so. But this really is. This is a truly holy war. Um, In the New Testament, Ephesians 6, you and I are involved in a holy war. Who are we fighting against? Midianites? In Ephesians 6? (laughs) Spiritual forces of evil. Uh, Romans 16 says that God will soon crush Satan under your feet. So you're fighting against evil uh, in this. If, if if Jesus' kingdom was a physical kingdom here and now if Jesus's kingdom was a physical kingdom here right now God would form his people into a physical army and we would be defeating other other kingdoms but how do we know that Jesus's kingdom is not a physical kingdom here and now. What, where do we know that this is not the case? When does he, where does Jesus say this? At the end, yeah, you, you said, Pilate, uh, in John 18, Pilate entered his headquarters again, called Jesus, said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of from this world. So it's clear. And in the New Testament, it's, we aren't given commands Go out and defeat the Romans in battle. Go out and defeat the, 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 uh, the uh, Mongol hordes in battle. That's not, we are fighting spiritual enemies, forces of evil, um, and so we are called to a different standard. We're not, instead of going out and conquering the enemy, we're called to give 
good deeds to those who persecute us. Okay? But it's not because God has changed his ways. This is what I think we get it all messed up. He's still going to bring vengeance on all who are evil and refuse to repent of their sins. Right? It's just that we're not called to do that right now. We're not a part of that army at this point. Questions on that? So why is it important, if God was leading us to fight against spiritual forces, why did we need this episode about the Midianites? Why do we need to know about this? Why did those people need to be challenged to actually go out and fight against them? Anyone? Nathan? Numbers 33, 55, and 56 says, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side. They will give you trouble in the land where you live. But I think it's important that we trust God that even when he's calling us to do something that we don't want to do, he has a very valuable purpose for his kingdom in that. Mm-hmm. So, in God's final kingdom, there is no evil. None whatsoever. So, in this in this this like temporary kingdom, of Israel, the idea is they go into the land, their, their idea is that they should rid this land of all evil. And what you're saying, Nathan, is if you don't get rid of the evil people, then those people are going to be a challenge to you and cause trouble. Two ideas, they could just fight against you but they could also actually lead you away from God into more evil. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on, I think, in that situation. So um, trying to apply that here, we are fighting against spiritual forces of evil. We're fighting against the wickedness of our own heart. So what we should say is, we should have a zero tolerance for sin in our hearts. So, now, th- we, we, if you read the Reformed faith, we will all have sin in our hearts until the final day, until you see Jesus face to face. But you shouldn't be going, well, God's okay with that. He's okay with that sin. That's not a big deal to God. No, God's saying that he wants all sin gone. And so as Christians, we're, we're saying, yeah, I have to you know, kind of deal with the fact that I still have the ongoing presence of my old nature that loves evil and it's there all the time. But I'm in a war against that. And I can't just make friends with my old nature and think that God doesn't care about it. Does that make sense? So you have to kind of be in a zero tolerance. Just like they needed to get rid of all the people, so we need to have a zero tolerance for the sin in our lives. 
And we also need to know that Christ, when he died on the cross to punish your evil heart, he didn't just take care of most of the evil of your heart. He took care of all of the evil of your heart so that you're fully cleansed. So, so this, it has to be 100%. It can't just be, oh, we're okay with an okay society. It's like, no, the goal in Christ's kingdom is a perfectly righteous society where there's no evil whatsoever. That's where we're heading. <clears throat> All right, let's go on. Uh, seven and eight. Uh, Mike Starnes, you want to read for us? And they warred against the Midianites as the Lord commanded Moses, and they slew all the males. And they slew the kings of Midian beside the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, five kings of Midian. Balaam, also the son of Beor, they slew with the sword. Now keep the mic because I'm going to have you read it more in a minute. What do you notice here? It's just men at this point, and you just kind of like, okay, good, that, that, that should happen. Balaam was the one who was leading people astray. It's good that he gets his, his, uh, his judgment, okay? Um, yes. So they, it's like, yeah, they deserve it, right? Yeah. Uh, so then in verse 9, keep going, read 9 through 11, Mike. And the children of Israel took all the women of Midian captives and their little ones and took the spoil of all their cattle and all their flocks and all their goods. And they burnt all their cities wherein they dwelt and all their goodly castles with fire. And they took all the spoil and all the prey, both of men and of beasts. <clears throat> Okay, so what do you guys think about this? That's right. There, there was trouble, you know, brewing. Um, why would they do this? There are other places in Scripture that, that there, there's uh, freedom to take mercy on the women and children, but not here. Why? <laughs> it has to be 100%. That's, that's the idea. The picture here is to get it. God's wrath is upon all the Midianites. And I think, wow, in the final judgment, where the, will there be women and children? In the flood, was there women and children? Uh, number one, think about how much of a blessing it is to be a covenant child rather than outside of the covenant but here the Midianites God is bringing upon all of them their vengeance 
Why would they not bring it upon the women and the children? Or the cattle and the flocks and the herds? They saw them as a good, like they could make use of this. So these women probably became slaves. The children eventually uh, uh, probably grew up either, either as slaves or they entered into the covenant community in some way. They just saw it as beneficial. Certainly all the plunder would have been beneficial, right? Why get rid of all that? Uh, so they, instead of obedience to God's command, they were willing to tolerate some amount of um, disobedience because it seemed like they should bring um, blessing to themselves. Of course, it's not a faith because God says, obey me and I will bring uh, blessing upon you. Okay, so let's read 12 through 18. It keeps going. So let's have Nathan Graybill read. And brought the captive spoils and plunder to Moses and Eleazar the priest and the Israelite assembly at their camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Moses, Eleazar the priest, and all the leaders of the community went to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commander of thousands and commanders of hundreds who returned from battle. Have you allowed all the women to live? He asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord in what happened at Peor, so that, that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man, but save for yourselves every girl who has never slept with a man. All right, so Moses is angry, and he's angry because these women had already been used to seduce many of the Israelites, right? Um, they were already an occasion for stumbling, stumbling. I think of Luke 17. Jesus says, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he would cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Um, So committing the sin is bad, but encouraging others to commit the sin is even worse. And God's bringing about his just vengeance. Um, but Moses does make a, a judgment in terms of an act of mercy. What does he allow? And I think this is the means by which the Midianites continue as a people, right? Let's keep going. 19 and 20. Mary, you want to read for me? In camp, outside the camp, seven days, whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain 
Purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all work of goat's hair, and every article of wood. Okay, so uh, they have to remain outside the camp. Why? Unclean, but I thought God told them to do it. Why would this make you unclean? You're obeying God. Perfect. God still hates death and sin. So even though that the judgment is necessary according to the righteousness of God, even though that he wants us to participate in it, it is right for you to feel like this is actually making you unclean. It's not a bad thing to just say, I don't want to be a part of that. Because it, it does in some way uh, uh, make it, because in God's future kingdom, there is no death. No evil, no death. Perfect. So the fact that they have to actually have a judgment in which they are called upon to execute God's wrath upon people makes them unclean. Not permanently unclean, but God is teaching them that this, is, this judgment is a necessary uh, action, but it's not where we really want to end up because we want to end up where there's no death, no evil, period. That's what he's going for. <clears throat> So, if you, in your heart, think that it is wrong to love killing, you're right. <laughs> so, everything we say about God's vengeance and the final wrath and all that kind of stuff, it's still, in your heart, you should never love killing. Um, Twenty-one through twenty-four. Clark, you want to read for us? Then Eleazar the priest said to the soldiers who had gone into battle, "This is the requirement of the law that the Lord gave Moses: gold, silver, bronze, iron, tin, lead, and anything else that can withstand fire must be put through the fire, and then it will be clean. But it must also be purified with the water of cleansing." And whatever cannot withstand fire must be put through that water. On the seventh day, wash your clothes, and you will be clean. Then you will come into the camp. Okay. Yeah. Then you will come into the camp. <laughs> you can come back in. You can be excited. So, Okay, so what we see here, you see a cleansing by fire. That would be the bronze altar. And you see a cleansing of water, that would be the laver. Both of those are part of the, the Levitical cleansing system. Um, only the things that are able to pass through the, the fire will be the things that you'll be able to have. Does this have a New Testament application? 1 Corinthians 3. Turn there. I wonder if... Paul is thinking of Numbers 31 when he is, when he is uh, 
talking about 1 Corinthians 3, verses 9 through 15. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God given to me. Like a skilled master builder, I I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive award. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Again, I don't know if it's the exact parallel, but it seems to me that, that um, we think about what goes with us into the eternal kingdom. Only those things that have endured the, the purification of the fire, so to speak. Your works, your, the, the good works that you've done in this life, many of those will make it through. The things that won't make it through will be the things that are still sinful, the things that are uh, uh, unclean, impure, those kind of things won't make it through. But this, in, this understanding of being going through the fire in order for the people to be able to enjoy them in the end makes sense because, remember, nothing in that kingdom will be unclean. It will all be pure. Questions or comments? All right, back in Numbers 31, 25 to 30. Robin, you want to read those for me? The Lord said to Moses, Take the count of the plunder that was taken, both of man and beast. You and Eleazar the priest and the heads of of the fathers' houses of the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation, and levy for the Lord a tribute from the men of war who went out to battle, one out of five hundred of the people and of the oxen and of the donkeys and of the flocks. Take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as a contribution to the Lord. And from the people of Israel's half you shall take one drawn out of every fifty of the people of the oxen of the donkeys and of the flocks of all the cattle and give them to the Levites who keep guard over the tabernacle of the Lord. Okay, this is all about plunder. How does it fit into eternal life? Does plunder have anything to do with eternal life? Okay, let's look at some passage. Matthew 12, 28 and 29. We're going to be looking at various verses here. So let's just go to Matthew 12, 28 and 29. Carolyn, you want to read those for me? Yeah. 
For again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. <laughs> so it doesn't use the word plunder. My translation says plunder instead of rob, right? So what is being spoken of in this, in this passage? Who's doing the, the plundering? Oh, go ahead. Read that. Go ahead. Puts it in context. Yeah. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There you go. So who's driving out demons? Christ is doing that, and it's connected to the kingdom. So he's driving out demons, and he is plundering Satan's household. Now, there's a lot of different ways you can think of this. But one of the ways is that you were a member of Satan's household, and he, he ties up Satan so that he can plunder you. He can pull you out of, of Satan's, your plunder. <laughs> um, but there are other ways, too. It can be the wealth of the world as well. Um, turn back to Isaiah 10, verse 13. Uh, Howard, do you want to read that for me? For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. Okay, so again, this is messianic prophecy, God saying that he's going to do these things, and he actually says he gets rid of their boundaries because there's all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, oh, and I'm going to actually take their treasures into uh, my kingdom. So there's two ways you can think about eternal life in the judgment day when they think about this world that we live in. Um, one picture of going from here to there, the new heavens, new earth, is one of like, utter destruction. It's like it's complete, the, the, the elements melt, and then it's like remade again, like complete. But there's another picture, and that is this idea that it's, it's like a, an old garment uh, being wrapped up and then unfolded again. So the idea is that in this sense, there is a, the, the treasures of this world are carried into the new kingdom. So they used to be used to belong to these other kingdoms of the world, now they all belong to Christ and his kingdom. That's kind of the picture. So, and I, I think you have to have both of these ideas of the world being completely destroyed, because it is hard to imagine how things would get transferred, but both images are in scripture, and so I try to keep both of them in my mind, that if I look at the world and I see wealth or power or technology or whatever you think that the world has to offer, that really belongs to Christ. <laughs> Tis. It will be taken from the kingdoms of this world and given to Christ's kingdom. So that frees us to not even care about it, right? Because God's in control of that. We don't have to worry about it. Um, I, I admit that uh, if, you, if you only had that image, then you would be trying to uh, 
I, I think you'd just be trying to preserve the world for the next world. And, and I don't think God really has that in mind either. It's this utter burning through fire kind of picture as well. But somehow we're supposed to keep both of those on. And I, and I think it's right in our minds as Christians to realize that we are the heirs of anything that is good in the world. It belongs to us. Look at Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. First one there, raise your hand, and we get to the mic. You can read it. Oh, there you go. Little Clark's ready. At least his son says he's ready. <laughs> Zephaniah chapter 2. Uh, yes. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. And verse 10. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. Hmm. So there's this idea of God paying back. You mocked my people, you took from them, you plundered from them, and now I'm going to reverse the tide. You're going to get everything uh, back uh, that, that was taken from you to his people. Um, turn to Isaiah chapter 60. <clears throat> Again, this is the future glory of Israel. I'm just going to read a couple of these. Your gates shall be open continually day and night. That means you'll never have any fear of any enemies. They shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations and their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. Cyprus, the plain, the pine, the beautiful, to beautify the palace of my sanctuary and I will make the place of my feet glorious. So when Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, is he telling Pilate, oh, don't worry about it, Pilate, do your own thing? No, he's just saying there's going to come a judgment. You're going to have to, how you treated me will be judged, and everything that you think you have right now will be taken from you and brought into my kingdom. Now think about these this message for us today as we see our world plunge itself into evil and see how it, it seems like all the power, all the influence, all the greatness is on the other side. We don't have to worry about that. I mean, we can fight, oppose it, try to do good, those kind of things. We should, but we know that this is the end. Um, I can keep going here. Um, look at Revelation 21, 23 to 27. Revelation 21, 23 to 27. Um, um, Erica, would you like to read? 
Just remind me of the verses again. Uh, 23 to 27. Okay. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the, the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, so does this verse, do these verses tell you anything that we have not already learned from Numbers 31? It's the same message. The, the writer of Hebrew or Revelation didn't just come up with those ideas. He's drawing from Old Testament ideas when he writes them in Revelation. So God knowing that we needed hope as we're being persecuted, as the kingdoms of the world are crushing us, knowing that we needed hope actually shows us a little snippet in the Midianites of what's going to happen to everyone who opposes Christ. Bring it back to the This final vengeance is coming. It is going to happen. If we believe that it's not going to happen, you might as well chuck the rest of your Christianity. Because if this is not happening, then the cross is emptied of all meaning. So as I think about this, here I am looking forward to that day. Every time I think about that day, there's a twinge of fear that comes into my heart. How do I alleviate that fear? What's that? Yeah. I rest in Christ, cling to Christ. Trust in him. Right? I mean, this is this is this is my only hope of making it through that day. And what has happened is the part of that vengeance that belongs to me that is mine has been placed upon Christ at the cross. That's my hope. And I agree, I agree with this final vengeance, even if God wants me to partake in some way. I don't know exactly what that'll look like on the final judgment. But I agree with it because I have already agreed with it on the cross because I'm telling God that I, it was just of him to judge me. I deserved it. I'm not saying I'm better than anyone else. I'm here. And so what we tell people to do today, and this is the message of the gospel, flee to Christ now. Because when you get to this day, it will be too late. Yes.
Mm. Yeah, so I think what happens to the believer on this day, and Danny, I think, dealt with this somewhat in his class, but what happens to the believer on this day, the, okay, this is maybe helpful to see. So you are soul and body. And because of sin, every person has a dark soul that deserves to be judged. So the whole, and the body is dying, so it is, it is going to die and it will die eternally. Uh, this whole person will die eternally. As a Christian... Christ has already crucified you, but he has crucified this part of you. And he has given you a new heart or a new soul. Okay? So right now, you actually are two. (laughs) There's the old you, which is being crushed on the cross, and there's the new you. So when you... and, And out of this new you are all sorts of actions that you do. And out of the old you are all sorts of actions. Sometimes people like that the soul is, is more like this, that, there's, that the new you is growing up inside of the soul, like it's springing up out of a dead tree, kind of another image. But the idea is how much of what you do in this life is from the new you, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of which God will reward and give you all sorts of Uh, joy, and how much of it is the old you, sometimes that's hard to tell. So you go to the judgment day, and what happens, and this is why we're okay with the judgment day, this is why it's okay that all of our works get exposed, is because God is going to burn away everything that's of the old you, and all that will be left is the new heart, and the works that it has done by the Holy Spirit. You'll be given a new body to go with your new, new heart, which you already have in Christ, and you will, then you'll go into the new heavens and new earth. So even Christians need to go through this judgment day to have what's, what's still old and corrupt of them just kind of stripped away. Because if you don't have that, we would still be this mixture as well, and we don't want that to happen. We want to be absolutely pure and good and holy in the new heavens and new earth. But we're, we're, this is why, like, every time you go to communion, you know... That's so beautiful because you're, you're, you're reaffirming your faith in Christ and there's a cleansing of the soul so that you're ready, spirit, soul, to enter into the glory with Christ. When you see him face to face, everything that's not pure will be burned away. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's like we, we need that judgment even though we know it's not going to destroy us because it's not actually going to get rid of this. That, that part is going to endure through the judgment because it's what Christ has created uh, new in us. Yep. So, even though I know that my new soul can't be destroyed, and even though I know God's going to burn everything away, see, you could start thinking, well, this is indestructible. It doesn't matter how I live. No big deal. I'm going to go to heaven anyway. But that's not the way that 
that the Bible talks about. It says if you have the hope of perfect purity, then you're going to spend your life trying to defeat sin here and now. And you're going to be fighting in the battle, waging war against sin now. Because that's, you, your hope is there. If this is your hope to have no impurity in, in you, then why would you ignore purity here and now? Okay? <clears throat> of course, we all do at times. That's why we still call ourselves sinners. So you have, you know, and that's why you keep repenting of sin, continuing to cast yourself on Christ, and, and have this future hope for you. Any questions? All right, let's keep going back in uh, Numbers 31. Uh, 31 to 47. Who wants to read a longer passage? Barry, you want to read that? And Moses and Eleazar the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now the plunder remaining of the spoil that the army took was 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 persons in all. Women who had not known man by lying with him, and the half of the portion of those who had gone out in the army numbered 337,500 sheep. And the Lord's tribe of, and the Lord's tribute of sheep was six hundred and seventy-five. The cattle were thirty-six thousand, of which the Lord's tribute was seventy-two. The donkeys were thirty thousand five hundred, of which the Lord's tribute was sixty-one. The persons were sixteen thousand, of which the Lord's tribute was thirty-two persons. And Moses gave the tribute, which was the contribution for the Lord to Eleazar the priest as the Lord commanded Moses from the people of Israel's half which Moses Moses separated from that of the men who had served in the army now the congregation's half with 337,500 sheep 36,000 cattle and 30,500 donkeys and 16,000 persons from the Lord, from the people of Israel's half, Moses took one of every fifty, both of persons and of beasts, and gave them to the Levites who kept guard over the tabernacle of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to go quickly here. First off, in the first few verses, the plunder is great, right? I mean, it's not just a small amount; it's huge, um, and it. Again, we should be like, wow, the, the glories of heaven will not be, oh, it's just a little too small. No, it will be awesome. It will be great. We see kind of a difference between uh, 36 through 41 and then 42 through 47. In 36 through 41, there is tribute paid to whom? Verse 41, who is who's it given to? Uh, and it was a congregation... A contribution for who? For the Lord, okay? What percentage do they get? 
One out of 500, somebody do the math on that. Where's my math people? Point two percent. It's a very small amount. Um, uh, this is quote unquote the army's portion, the Lord's portion. Um, uh, but then you look at the next portion, which is really to all the congregation. What do they get? One out of 50, right? Which is actually 2%. Um, and this, this portion is given to the Levites in particular, right? Not just to the, the priest. I don't understand all the ins and outs of this. Um, <clears throat> But there's this idea that everyone benefits from the plunder. And I would argue that everyone has a place. Some of the plunder you get from Christ's victory and our victory over uh, Satan and evil. So, trickle-down effect. (laughs) Um, It is trickle-down. We all get it from Christ. He's the one. 48 and 49, then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, came near to Moses and said to Moses, your servants have counted the men of war who are under our command, and there is not a man missing from us. Why is this unbelievable? You never have 100% people come back after a war. At 12,000 people going to defeat the Midianites and not one man was lost? It never happens. There's always casualties in war. So why, why, do, why is this so important in Scripture here? Because this is the final judgment. Will any of Christ's army be lost? Not one. No one can take them out of my hand. And you see similar um, in the army of God in Revelation, you've got 12,000 from every tribe, and that whole 12,000 from every tribe, the whole 144,000, we always try to say it's some little small people, but it's symbolic of the whole people of God are entering into God's uh, victory, not just a part of them. God doesn't lose his children. Verse 50 through 54. And we have brought the Lord's offering, what each man found, articles of gold, armlets and bracelets, signet rings, earrings and beads, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar, the priest, received from them the gold, all crafted articles, all the gold of, of the contribution that they presented to the Lord from the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds was 16,750 shekels. The men in the army had each taken plunder for himself, And Moses and Eleazar, the priest, received the gold from the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and brought it into the tent of meeting as a memorial for the people of Israel before the Lord. Um, The commanders of the army recognize that they stand by grace. Remember, they bring all this stuff in to make atonement for ourselves. They don't don't, uh, arrogantly think that they have conquered in their own strength. They they need atonement for themselves as well. They are instruments in the hands of the Lord, nothing more. Uh, And then what do we do with all of this 
uh, plunder, we in essence lay it down at Christ's feet, telling him that uh, he is the one worthy of all this. And again, this comes from, uh, it's picked up in Revelation 4. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before them, him who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So here they are basically saying, yes, we've been given, we've benefited from this, we're receiving the blessings of the plunder, but it really all belongs to you. Um, Yes, Uh, in fact, uh, Ephesians 4 even says, and we've talked about this before, so I just skipped over this, the teachers and apostles and and, all these leaders in God's house are actually plunder. You know, so really every Christian is about about Christ. We're all part of Christ's plunder, so yes. Um, So, all right, we're going to end there. We we, uh, just understand, again, the fact that, just in my process of, of reading something, when I would go across Numbers 31, probably my first reaction is just, you know, I'm thinking way back in my life, whoa, that just sounds awful. I can't believe God, why would God want to do this? And all these kind of things. And, and the initial step and in understanding is just saying in my heart, God, it's your word, you're good, even if I don't understand it. And I would tell you right now, I don't even understand it fully yet. But I know that God is good and he's teaching his good truth through this. And so over time, you keep trying to wrestle with it, you keep trying to think about it, and you come to a clearer understanding both of the gospel and of the final judgment because of passages like Numbers 31. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is all true. It is all good. Yes, we cringe at times. We, we don't understand it. And we still don't have a perfect understanding of what that eternal judgment will look like, but we praise you that it is true and that you are building for us a kingdom where there will be no evil, and that is awesome. That is our hope, Lord. Help us to fight in our little small ways here and now to oppose the sin of our hearts and to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I know. <laughs> they don't get it. And, and that's really what they need to do is only if...